Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Justin Clark. And I'm Mattimore Cronin. And today we're talking about the future of media. And I thought we would split this up into four different parts. So the first is media trust, media polarization, media consumption, and then finally media evolution. So I just want to get your take on media trust, especially with this brand new Acosta video. Uh, could you just give listeners sort of a update on everything that's going on there? Yeah, so if any of you guys missed it, basically what happened is that Jim Acosta, CNN's one of their anchors, got his media pass revoked from the White House. And it all started from this misleading tweet where Sarah Huckabee Sanders said that Jim Acosta inappropriately put his hands on a female White House intern who was just trying to do her job. And regardless of the fact that it seemed to imply there was sexual misconduct, even though it clearly wasn't by the video, it unleashed a a fury of people looking at the video and trying to figure out, is this video real? Was this video doctored? Because if you look at the original video, basically what happens is Jim Acosta tries to ask a question. He asks a follow-up question, and Trump says, that's enough. So the intern shuffles over to take the mic away from him, and he just says, pardon me, ma'am, and he puts his hand sort of against her hand so that she can't take the mic. And He just kind of blocks her arm, basically. Yeah, he blocks her, but but the way that the video that Sarah Huckabee Sanders tweeted out was shown is it looked more like a karate chop. Whereas if you look at the original video, it's more just like a it's more just like a subtle sort of shifting of hands. Um, yeah. It didn't seem that offensive in, in the original video. But anyways, the point of why this is so crucial is that we did not even suspect that there was going to be a crisis around fake video footage until 2020. I think when we have talked about this in the podcast before, we talked about how the 2020 election is probably the first time that there's going to be a video go viral that may or may not have been faked or doctored with and that it's going to have an impact on the election. But we're already seeing this. And the White House already put out a video that many claim to be doctored. And whether it is doctored or not, so I I did some research there and BuzzFeed and PolitiFact both seem to think that there's no real evidence that this was 100% intentionally doctored. Yeah, and I think she got the video from InfoWars, though. Like, yeah, that was so where that's... the doctored video originally like, right. showed up. So that's another concern, is if the White House is getting their content from InfoWars and repurposing it, I mean, I, I don't think people would respect... Hence the future podcast if we repurposed InfoWars oh, content. Oh my gosh. And the fact that it's happening at the highest levels of the free world, mm-hmm. the highest level of the free world is incredible. And I, I, so I think this is an important trend for several reasons. First of all, it's kind of doesn't even matter whether it's doctored or not. It seems like what actually happened was that they took the video, they converted it into a GIF, which basically removes half of the frames of the video. So it seems much more abrupt. And the new and like the actual sound where he says, excuse me, ma'am, it just in the doctored video, it just he's just karate chopping some 
interns, some young female interns arm away. Yeah, there was but a then, pause in the sound. So the sound stopped yeah. at the crucial moment where you would where you would doctor the video if you did it intentionally. And then what happened after it was converted to a GIF, they then reconverted it into a video, into an MP4 file. And at that point, basically what happens is they fill in the frames. So what seems to happen is that they filled in some extra frames that made it look even more like a karate chop than it had when it was a GIF. So the point is not whether this was fake or not. The point is that there already is a question mark in the mind of society of whether a video that's put out by the White House is real or fake. And this level of, of distrust, the question of whether people can trust the media, whether people can trust a video that they're looking at, especially when it comes from the White House, is something completely that new that we haven't seen before. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that will happen in the future too. I mean, this is such a, a rudimentary um, adjustment of the video. But think about what we talked about in the last episode, you know, deep fakes, actually mm -hmm. making somebody look like they're saying something when they're not or doing something when they actually didn't. You know, there's there's a lot of potential for this to go wrong. You know, we, there's also potential for this to be really awesome. But, you know, we need to talk about both and be aware that really bad things or people can be made to look like they're doing really, you know, horrific things or just saying, you know, absurd things. Yeah. And thankfully, this was a public appearance. So there were other people filming the event. So they were able to corroborate it. And thank God for institutions like PolitiFact that can actually check these things in an unbiased way. And I think there's going to be an even greater need for institutions like PolitiFact going forward. But imagine if instead of this being a video that happened during a press conference that was very publicly visible, if it instead was a video of some private interaction between, let's say, Donald Trump and a protester or something where there's no one to corroborate whether the video was real or not. And you basically just have to decide do I trust the person who put up this video more than I trust the White House if both sides are saying something different that happened? Mm. And it's, it's going to be tricky to, I mean, the fact that we can't even say for certain whether this video was doctored or not. I mean, I've, I've rarely seen PolitiFact not give a firm answer of whether this is true, not true. They basically just said that they couldn't get an expert to verify that it was for sure doctored. Yeah. And one of the things about these deep fakes going forward is it will continue to get harder and harder for humans to determine whether or not they're fake. I mean, right now there are those telltale signs like a person isn't blinking or a person is ha having very kind of robotic motions um, in, in certain aspects. But what I think in the future we're probably going to need is sort of an adversarial um, AI that predicts like what's the likelihood of this video being fake you know there's yeah. a lot of other solutions like having some sort of you know we talked about a blockchain sort of thing where we can verify if something is true or false um, yeah it's like but, digital forensics basically yeah yeah and the other thing is you know you might need an alibi to prove that you weren't 
part of some video that was made up to be fake. It's, yeah, it's almost, I, yeah. I think in the future, an alibi would probably be easier to come by. You know, if right. we're being, if we're truly being tracked at some point, we're just going to need to accept the fact that all of our data is always, you know, being sent out to somebody. Hopefully it's somebody that's trustworthy or some company that's trustworthy. Um, but you know, if they have location settings on you personally, maybe there's some sort of implant mm. that you can use and, you know, there should be some way to completely verify people's locations throughout time. You know, that also has really scary things, but it can also make the legal system probably a lot um, better. Right. Well, if you're a person of interest, like the president or someone in his cabinet or even a top sure. news anchor, seems like those people are the ones who would need a constant alibi the most, but also mm -hmm. the people who would be most worried by being constantly tracked because that could make, put them at risk for an assassination. Or, oh, yeah. And then the, yeah, that so would the, be really bad. Go so ahead. the other piece of, of news that's really relevant that just came out a couple of days ago as it relates to media trust is the AI news anchor that China just put out. So if you guys missed this video, it's a video of a news anchor that looks entirely like a human being. I don't know how many people would be able to tell that it's not a human being, but it mm -hmm. is in fact a machine learning based simulation of a real Chinese news anchor. And he's saying whatever they type him to set type that he should say. Yeah. And this, this idea of having news that's auto-generated or generated by the state is not new. I mean, they already have programs that will automatically write an article based on, let's say, if there's an earthquake, it'll automatically pull in the data that says there was a magnitude X earthquake in Y location that has implications for this, this, and this region. So they already have that sort of functionality. But to put a face to it, it really is going beyond what we've seen thus far because people talk about the talking heads of news, right? Mm -hmm. They talk about, oh, these just talking heads. They're just saying whatever they're told. I mean, Chris Celia has a pretty funny bit about this. But <laughs> the reality is there still is some filter. You know, there are some things that you could try to put into a news anchor's mouth that he would say, what is this? I'm not saying this. This is false because they have some moral some moral compass, right. but if you have an AI news anchor that has a face, but that literally is just whatever the government or the state media wants them to say, they say, that's a new level of direct state to viewer media that we have not seen. Yeah, when I watched this video, it was kind of eerie. You know, there there are still some hurdles for it to overcome, but it it's not so robotic that it doesn't. It's totally not human because because this AI generated news anchor, you know, it has the these little motions that humans make as they're talking. You know, it's kind of tilting its head a little bit as it you know changes mm -hmm. um, you know sentences or whatever it is, but. The thing that it really needs to get better at is the voice because the yeah. voice still sounds like a Siri or, or something with a super monotone, no inflection. Right. It just kind of, it sounds like a robot. So 
But Google Duplex figured that part out. So I don't know if we're if we just happen to be farther along in that domain than China. But it's not mm-hmm. like the technology isn't there yet. I mean, it is there with Google Duplex. So if you combine mm-hmm. Google Duplex's voice with China's AI news anchor visuals, you would have mm-hmm. a deadly combination. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really cool things. You know, if they if people can get the voice right, and um, I don't know how good. Uh, Google's duplex generalizes to everything. So could it be the the voice actor of an audiobook, for example? Hmm. I'm not sure that that might be a, a harder thing for it to to do right now. But as we move forward and these these voice synthesizers get much better, you know, there's a lot of really cool things that can happen there. Yeah. And I think also just as it relates to media trust, and then we can move on to the next segment. Mm -hmm. I think what's going to become more and more important is the trust that you have in specific media outlets. So I think the New York Times, the Washington Post, Infowars, the White House, they all have different levels of trust depending on who you're talking to. And I think that trust is going to become paramount as we look forward, because that's going to really be your only way of knowing, should I believe in this video? Should I believe in this article? Should I believe in these statistics? It's going to be really hard to, I mean, think of even the name Infowars. It's like fighting battles with info. And someone (laughs) tweeted, Alex Jones had a battle with information and he lost. (laughs) It's like, it's like, yeah, that's true. Most people realize he's a crackpot, but there are, millions of people who don't and Mm -hmm. that is terrifying yeah that actually kind of leads into the next segment of media polarization because when people gravitate towards you know their one or two media sources not everybody's going to gravitate towards that there's going to be people that gravitate towards all of these other things which is kind of what we're seeing right now you know we have the segment of the population that gravitates towards Fox News. We have the segment of the population that goes more towards, you know, CNN, or maybe more towards the middle, a little bit on the left is the New York Times. Yeah. You know, so when you have all of these different segments, they're going to be in a battle of, you know, what is true? What, what do I need to be telling my listeners? And it's not going to be the same from news source to news source. Right. And, and there's two really powerful psychological elements at play here, which is confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance. So with confirmation bias, if you already think, oh, the Democrats are trying to put out fake votes, they're, they're voter fraudulent people just inherently, then if you see someone tweet about, you know, if you see Trump tweet about how, or, you know, Hannity just tweeted that, these votes are coming in seemingly out of thin air, all of these Democratic votes. And someone else tweeted, they're like, someone please tell Sean Hannity how mail works. (laughs) Because in elections, you can just put, you can just mail in your ballot as long as it's postmarked by election day. It still counts. But uh, the fact that so many people are willing to just believe that, oh yeah, these must be fake because of what I already believe about the nature of Democrats that's confirmation bias. And people who 
who have confirmation bias, which is everyone has it to different degrees, they're going to be drawn to whatever confirms their existing beliefs even more. And then with cognitive dissonance, if one of their own, like, let's say if, a, you know, they find out that a Republican, you know, sends a bunch of pipe bombs, then they'll say, oh, well, that's not what real Republicans are. He's just a crazy guy that doesn't represent anything. This has nothing to do with Trump's rhetoric or any of the hate rhetoric out there. So, I mean, both of these these psychological tendencies are so powerful and so difficult to overcome, which is why centrism and level-headedness is not sexy. It doesn't get as many clicks. It doesn't get as many supporters. Yeah, and to kind of further your point, you know, when you have the the bomber, you know, the, the Republican bomber and then the Republican or the more right-wing media saying, oh, this is not what we are. And, you know, I don't think that every Republican, you know, wants to kill, you know, innocent people. But at the same time, news anchors on the left are like, look at this. This is the right. right. So it's like, so they're in this battle and then they're just going more towards the extremes, which is exactly what we're seeing. So hopefully in the future that, you know, people can figure out a way to make centrism a little more sexy, you know, figure out what flaws led us to this extremism and then exploit the flaws to get us back to the center. You know, there's, there's probably not, there's probably not much of a better way to get around that. Oh, I agree. And there's definitely even more examples on the left. So I don't want to make this seem like it's just a right wing thing on the left. I mean, the, the Antifa members going to Tucker Carlson's house and saying, we know where you live. I mean, that's that's pretty terrifying. Mm-hmm. I don't care who you are or what you say. You shouldn't have people th- come to your door in the middle of the night and with signs and a megaphone saying, we know where you live. So yeah. so it, it's it's rotten on both sides and, and we need to go more centrist. But there's so it's such an uphill battle because, I mean, we've talked about this before, but the way that the current media landscape is right now is it's all based on who can get the most clicks, who can make the most ad revenue. And that tends to be the extremes. It tends to be the outrage feed, outrage culture. And yeah, that's why whatever we're... is... You go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, and that's why we're seeing these uh, media echo chambers. Yeah. Yeah, so the I think one of the reasons that it's so hard to move towards the center is because like you were saying the all of these biases are so deeply ingrained in humans like the you know we if you think of us as having three layers to our brain you know we have like the super low level kind of what you would think of at the most basic organism level lizard and brain then, yeah lizard brain and then at the next then you have a mammalian brain you know that's a little bit up from there and then you have the the process, the human process, like the complex thinking and, and analyzing and planning. But when these these biases are rooted in the most fundamental portion of our brain, you know, those are the ones that are the hardest to break. And that's yeah. why you see people that have a hard time breaking ha- habits along the lines of diets, because all of these things like eating is in the most basic, um, in the most fundamental Mm-hmm. Uh, part of our brain so you know it's it's really hard to penetrate that deeply in, yeah. into our mind yeah i agree and and 
I've been thinking about one thing that Brett Ewer said on our Future of Politics podcast, where he says that he predicts that in the future, political candidates are going to have their own vertical media following. So imagine that the next person who becomes president or some of the future congressional candidates, if they all, let's say they all have their own podcast, like let's say Ben Shapiro decides mm -hmm. to run for, for Congress. He already has this massive following through his podcast, through the Daily Wire. It's kind of similar to how like Steve Bannon already had a massive platform with Breitbart and how, you know, like Alexandria or Ocasio-Cortez has a massive social media following. And it's not like she would have been able to get to where she is now if no one paid attention to her. So I think this idea of vertical alignment of candidates with their followers is definitely something we're going to see more of. And it's also risky because it's it's like basically having different factions of like tribes of people with different mm -hmm. beliefs that are all sort of vying for who can get the most attention. And sometimes it's for good. Sometimes they get a lot of attention because they're truly inspiring and they're truly authentic. Right. But a lot of times it's just because they tell their followers what their followers want to hear because of these psychological biases. Yeah, I really like that too. And it doesn't even need to be confined to the political realm. Because if we have all of, the, I mean, we kind of see this with the podcasting world is people can have a voice, but you can find people on any spectrum. Like if we continue with the political example, I like it because it'll kind of enforce a little bit of competition. If you're not just choosing between Fox News and CNN or, you know, like the other big ones and you can choose anything in between, it's easier to find something, you know, if if these podcasts or these media channels were easier to find for people, I think that they would be able to, you know, gravitate more towards the center because there are more options and the, the extremes aren't so heavily weighted. Yeah. And, and we're seeing that not only with news, as you say, but also with like YouTube and Netflix mm -hmm. and any of these digital outlets where you serve people content that's relevant to what they have just recently watched, but it's slightly more extreme. So it pushes people to the extremes. And if we had a way of changing this, so it pushes people more towards the center, but still chose videos that are really high quality that get lots of attention because they're well done, but that they happen to be more central rather than extreme, that would be a much better world. Yeah, agreed. So, if we, so let's move on to the next part. So yeah. media consumption. Mm -hmm. How do you see media consumption changing? You know, well, where do you see it as it is right now? And then how do you see it changing towards the future? Yeah, totally. So I guess just first looking in the past, over the past 200 years, we have reduced the work week by about four hours a day. Mm -hmm. And over the last 200 years, we now spend four hours a day watching TV. So <laughs> we've basically taken all the time that we have saved from not having to work as much and put it towards TV watching. And this is changing now. So that's what happened in the past. What's happening now is that we're seeing TV getting replaced with digital consumption to a large degree. 
like now today we're seeing an average of four hours a day spent watching TV and six hours a day consuming digital content. Some of that digital content is done while multitasking. So, right. you know, you can be at work while reading the news or while checking Twitter or whatever. So, you know, but a large, there's only a small part of our day where we are awake and not consuming media, which is uh, pretty amazing, but I don't think it's that surprising. Mm -hmm. And as far as what we're seeing among different age cohorts, every single age cohort, except for 65 plus, has been watching less TV year over year and consuming more digital year over year. So we are seeing this replacement. But people mm -hmm. over 65 are watching more TV year over year. So I think that's part of why we're seeing such a strong Republican vertical alignment of the fans of Sean Hannity, um, mm -hmm. you know, people who it's like they're getting more and more hooked as time goes on. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I find that interesting, you know, that we replaced all of our work with TV consumption or media consumption. Do you see any of this as being constructive? Because I know there are some people that have very constructive media consumption habits. You know, for yeah. example, if you want to watch documentary series to learn something interesting, I mean, it doesn't have to be directly applicable in your life, but you're at least learning something, which is a lot different from, you know, I don't know what percent of people watch something like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or The keeping up with the Kardashians, but right, know, there's, right. there's a spectrum of how constructive this media consumption is. Yeah, well, there's, I think, just to play a little bit of devil's advocate, after a long day of work, sometimes you do just want to put on something mindless and just, you yeah. know, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with after a long day, you know, having a glass of wine and watching The, ba the Bachelor with a couple of your mm -hmm. girl girlfriends or whatever, mm -hmm. but... If you're doing that for four to six hours a day, then your brain's going to become mush after 10 years. So right. I, I think there is a combination. I think there's a, a nice small amount of trashy content that can be healthily consumed on a daily basis. Okay. But if you're consuming 10 hours of media a day, if it's not constructive media, if it's just people, you know, confirming what your biases already are, sparking more hate in you, or just, you know, making you have a more an increasingly superficial view of the world or of different genders or things like that, then that's obviously not good. But, you know, I have a developer uh, friend, front end developer, who, sure. I mean, this guy listens to so many podcasts a day, he basically for 12 hours a day, listens to podcasts nonstop. And he's one of the most knowledgeable people I've, I've ever met. And mm -hmm. so in, in a lot of respects, if you're consuming quality content, then it's really good. And one thing about I've heard on a recent interview with Elon Musk, when Kara Swisher asked him about his media consumption habits and why he spends so much time on Twitter. And if he regrets spending so much time on Twitter, he responded with something that I thought was really, really um, true to the way that I think about it, which is that when you're on Twitter, you're tapping into the stream of consciousness, of, of collective consciousness that's going on mm. right now. So it's like everyone's sort of in their own silo, but when you tap into Twitter 
or into other forms of media, it's like all of a sudden now you're in this this conscious stream that's in real time where people are mm -hmm. talking about what's happening right now. You can see what's happening on both sides and you shouldn't spend all of your days doing that. I think there's there's still a strong argument to be made for, you know, Henry David Thoreau, Walden Pond, going out mm -hmm. in nature, just being away from the stream of consciousness. But I also think there are benefits to being in the stream of consciousness. Yeah, and that's that's what we talk about a lot too, is just having a balance between, you know, the different extremes. And one of the one of the things I really like about where media is going right now and the consumption of media is podcasts and audiobooks. You know, those are two of my favorite forms of media just because you don't have to just sit down. I have a very hard time just sitting down for everybody listening, but um, maybe this is why I enjoy audio so much. But I can get up, go for a walk, you know, be out in nature, but also be listening to a podcast or listening yeah. to a book. So it's almost like double constructive time for me. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I never fold laundry anymore unless I'm listening to a podcast or an <laughs> audiobook. Yeah, housework. But now that I fold laundry, it's like a meditative <laughs> exercise. <laughs> I actually enjoy it. But oh, if... sweet. I get to listen to a new podcast. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I completely agree. And the the interesting thing about audio is that if you look at the projections, it's not projected to increase that much. It looks like it's staying pretty flat, but the nature of it is changing. So every year, a bite is getting taken out of of radio and it's getting moved into podcasts. And I mm. think this, I think it's sort of going in the same trend that we already talked about, which is the vertical alignment of media personalities and, and media following, where it's less just about having, you know, one NPR that, you know, everyone listens to pretty much. And it's more about, oh, who's your favorite podcaster or, you know, radio host or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's that vertical alignment. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah. oh, go ahead. So I was just going to say, you know, I, I, you already see that with um, podcasts, I think. Everyone has like their favorite person, whether it's Sam Harris or Joe Rogan, or maybe you listen to NPR Ted Radio Hour, you know. Like, or My Favorite Murder or Serial. Or, there's so many yeah. different types of shows out there. Yeah. What were you going to say though? I, I was going to say that, you know, in the same vein, content is king. Content has always been king, but now it's more true than ever. Meaning, if, we, if you look at any of the modern media companies, you can, if you have good content, it will go viral. It will go out there. I mean, one example I was thinking about is Fortnite. So Fortnite was some unknown free Xbox video game that I remember hearing my friend Hunter talk about and just saying, oh, yeah, like I don't really buy video games anymore, but I've been playing this free game Fortnite and it's really fun. And then a month later, it's now... I mean, it's incredible how big this has become. And the, I don't, I, I forget how much money this this generates when you combine the money that every streamer makes and all oh of that, gosh. but it's astronomical. And the, Yeah, and, and what's crazy yeah. is, so um, especially with Fortnite, there are certain streamers. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but there's a streamer. Well, first of all, there's a platform called Twitch, which is a totally... 
well, relatively new type of media consumption because you're watching people play video games. You're watching people stream video games. Um, so, I mean, if you like video games in general, that's pretty cool because so if you think about people that are sports fans like soccer, for example, you know, or football is probably a better example. Not everybody can just go out and play football mm -hmm. all the time. You know, it's it's a relatively rough sport, relatively active sport. So, you know, it's and people... you certainly can't play it with the pro football yeah. players. Yeah. <laughs> Alongside but with streaming. Them. So with streaming, let's say you're a fan of a video game. Let's Fortnite's the easiest example because it's so popular right now. You play it just for fun. You're, you know, you're average. You're pretty good. But then you can also watch the top players. It's almost like having a one-to-one -one connection with professionals all the time. Mm -hmm. So you can actually be a fan in a sport that you play pretty religiously you get to also watch the top players all the time so you know there's this a much tighter i think um bond with the game and with the streamer and i i just love i love the idea of it you know some people don't really see why esports yeah. are so popular well um, but i think regardless of what anyone's bias is about real sports being more important than regular sports you cannot deny how impressive the instant feedback that these people have. I mean, their hand-eye mm -hmm. coordination, the way that they're able to yeah. play. I mean, if you've ever watched any of these games, it is incredible. I mean, these are people who are at, the, are at the top level of human performance, and it just happens to be through moving a controller rather, rather than moving your actual legs and arms like you would in yeah. football. It still is very impressive. And I think this is a good way of us transitioning into the final segment, which is media evolution. So let's mm. start with video games. How do you see video games evolving going forward? So I think with, it depends, you know, there's a lot of different types of video games. There are more adventure type games like Destiny or sort of like Assassin's Creed, where you're kind of adventuring around this world and doing challenges. The way I see those types of game, RPG. games, yeah. So the way that I see those types of games evolving is basically creating nearly endless worlds. Mm. So you know, there's also something similar to. So if you think of Minecraft, there's not really an objective to Minecraft except for just creating your own world in this you know blocky type environment, which. You know, I, I really like, I've never played Minecraft, but I like yeah. the concept of it. Or I you know, used to play Forge to... Mode in Halo, where you can okay. basically just, you're in this world, you can build and create whatever you want. And, and Fortnite is kind of like that too. I mean, it's not like an endless world, but you build stuff and you create your mm -hmm. own little fort. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to say this about uh, Fortnite, but the, so you were talking about how streamers make a lot of money. Um, there's a, there's one streamer called ninja who oh, streams yeah. Fortnite. i don't know if you have you heard of ninja yeah, yeah so just for listeners this guy just from streamers alone on twitch which is a company by amazon for all of the subscriptions that he has so people can subscribe to a, a streamer and you know get exclusive content and all that stuff and if you're a prime member you get a free subscribe every month so you can subscribe to your favorite channel but anyways just from subscriptions alone, Ninja makes something 
in the ballpark of three hundred to five hundred thousand a month. That's amazing from streaming, you know. And I and I think outrageous. Ready I think Ready Player One predicted this pretty well because mm. in that book they have all of these famous Ready Player One players or these gunters, mm-hmm. and people will pay inordinate, inordinate amounts of money to watch them play. They'll do ads, stuff like that. Yep. So, yeah, I think so. One of the trends that is related to video games, but not directly, is that I think as far as the main social media channels, like right now it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, I see these media channels going more closely to be intertwined with real life. So I think the days of being anonymous on these platforms or having different profiles, it's still going to be, it's still going to exist. But I think for the sake of, of the vertical alignment, it's going to be more advantageous for you to just say, look, I'm the same person on all of these profiles, some way of verifying it. And so it's more just like you have one digital self that manifests itself on different platforms, but it's pretty much the same self. And I think what that's going to create is a demand for a second self, a second life. So I see these role player Mm -hmm. games, these RPGs as filling that need to just be someone completely different, to be a hero, to be a villain, to be someone who goes on crazy adventures. And so I see these two things as being connected. Oh, yeah, I really like that idea. Um, Do you see the so back to your idea about the. Um, very intertwined social media. Do you think that'll be sort of an augmented reality type thing like you saw in uh, Black Mirror where there's this this social currency where you basically someone can put on their their glasses or whatever and see how many social points this person has or maybe something less, you know, ominous than that and it's more along yeah. the lines of just having everyone has access to your social profile. So when they see you in person, they know they can actually access everything else about your social profile. Yeah, well, I think you, you'll always have the chance of being private versus public. I mean, okay. not not to the yeah. FBI or to the owners of the social media networks, but I think you'll always have the option of being private or public. But if we look 20 years into the future, I believe that augmented reality is going to be ubiquitous. It's going to be Mm -hmm. everywhere. I think virtual reality is still going to be mostly for escapism. Like Like the second life. Yeah, like like the second life RPGs and for training purposes, like, you know, medical space, all of those Mm -hmm. sorts of things. But I think as far as just social media, I I think there is going to be augmented reality in every form of media everywhere in about 20 years. And how that's going to manifest itself, I'm not quite sure. But I I do think there's going to be a merging of the real world and the digital media worlds. Mm -hmm. And, And another thing that I was thinking about this is... So in the beginning, we were talking about deep fakes, you know, voice generated content, all this other technology that's that's advancing in conjunction with media. I think that we're going to see an insane amount of new media being created. So when when these technologies like voice synthesizers are easier to um, or they sound more like humans. You could have audiobooks 
generated, you know, uh, in an instant. So you could have an entire lineup of actors, basically. So if uh, you're reading, I don't know, Harry Potter, for example, you could you would have a voice for Harry Potter, for Hermione, for the narrator, you know, all oh, of this Oh, that would be stuff. very cool. I mean, you would almost have this this audio movie. I mean, every, it would just be um, an entire audio production that's one level or maybe a few levels above what we're seeing now, but it can be generated in an instant. Yeah. And we might also have books completely generated by AI. Like there's, there's so much content that can be created once AI is good enough mm-hmm. that people are basically taken out of the loop. Right. Well, I mean, think about how many new discoveries we're making every day in any industry you choose. So let's say you're a doctor and you want to stay up to date on the latest medical information. Every day they're, they're publishing new studies on cancer treatments, new data is coming in. So imagine if rather than having to wait for someone who writes in a way that resonates with your voice and who puts information together in a logical way and is able to get recent information, if rather than waiting for these books to come out, you could just simply download whatever the latest up-to-date information is about everything related to cancer prevention. And you can just read that and then, you know, a couple of years later, you just download the latest version again. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Um, and, I mean, that can be extended to any type of education. Yeah. Especially, you know, it might be more helpful in the in the high the higher education realm um, when it comes to like changing um, facts and stuff. Because at the bleeding edge, you're not always right. You know, so if you're in right, like, right, it, there'll be lots of use practice. of the subjunctive. Yeah, man. So what do you what do you think will happen in terms of um, I don't know. Let's say movies or TV shows. Yeah. So with movies. I see it as becoming more of a real event, of a real night out on the town, of a real mm-hmm. social experience, of something that you cannot get by just watching TV at home. So I see movie ticket prices going up even further. I see movie seats getting even more comfortable. I see they're having you know, more services, like you can just order a beer or a steak dinner or whatever, Mm -hmm. right from your movie seat, I see them becoming more immersive. So 4D, uh, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I I think it's really going to become more of a social out on the town sort of nightly experience, more of a high end experience, because everything that you, you know, all of what movies used to be, you can already get at home now to a large extent. Right. And then as far as, oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, one of the things that I hope happens too, at least in terms of home consumption, I'm not sure how this would um, turn out at, you know, public events at theaters and stuff, but if you could actually, so let's say movies changed a little bit, but you actually directed some like key decisions in the movie. So it was almost a decision tree and the, the end result of the movie was based on your decisions that you made. So it was kind of like an interactive movie. 
I mean, that's almost like video games. That, yeah, I was going to say, that's very similar to how video games are. And that's partly why video games are so engaging, because you have these cinematic sequences that are very much like a movie, but then you actually step in and make certain decisions, and then the movie moves along based on mm -hmm. what happens to you. So I could see something like that emerging of sort of video game and movie even more. Yeah, let's see. So as, as far as TV, so let's talk about that one. Okay. So with TV, I think the big trend there is blurring the lines of what is TV, what is a movie, what is a online video series, what's a special. And I think really it just comes down to, is it a series of videos or is it just a one-off of videos? Mm -hmm. And the length doesn't really matter. And, and so I, I think that TV, I mean, I just see it getting more and more chunks of it bitten out. And right now, already, if you just subscribe to Netflix or you just subscribe to Amazon Prime videos or whatever, it's cheaper than if you subscribe to cable. So it's more uh, financially advantageous in that way. But if you subscribe to HBO Now and and Apple TV, you know, if you subscribe to all of the different over-the-top networks, then it is more expensive. So I think what we're going to see is we're going to see it getting cheaper relative to cable because cable just doesn't have that much that much leeway to give. Right. And we're we're going to see more and more time and more and more money being spent by companies like Netflix on their content. Because like we said earlier, content is king. And if you look at the spending of Netflix relative to ESPN, it's incredible. I mean, you know, ESPN is already in, ESPN spends about $8 billion a, a year, I believe, on their content. Netflix is at about $6.7 But Netflix is growing at a much more rapid rate and mm -hmm. it's basically projected to take over a lot of, of what is currently in the cable TV space. Yeah, and given what we were talking about earlier, just having a higher output with these new technologies like digital animation or any sort of AI-generated content where you can make... you. I mean, there's going to be a point where we're making TV shows and movies completely by or some sort of artificial intelligence is making these. So maybe given a story, it'll create all the animations around it. And I mean, yeah. we could crank out like 10, we could crank out an entire series in a day given some story, or maybe it generates the story itself too. I think that That's will happen, like but I, I think it's going to be pretty far out there <laughs> because the last front, I forget who said this, but Someone said that the last frontier of AI is going to be comedy mm. because to make some witty remark in the way that stand-up comedians do requires, first of all, a knowledge of everything that's going on in the world and a knowledge of how everyone, per or to a large extent, people perceive the world. Mm -hmm. And then you also have to add a little twist so that it adds a little bit of absurdism to mm -hmm. this worldview. And we haven't even gotten to the point where AI has an accurate worldview, let alone to have a little interesting twist at it or nudge at it. It's not like yeah. I think it's not possible. I think it will happen. 
but it might be the very last frontier for AI. So I think it might be like, you know, 50 to 75 years out where we'll have that. But, but in the meantime, the big trend that's happening is just simply that these businesses like Netflix are much better positioned than the traditional businesses just based on their business model, their cost structure, how much they focus on producing quality content versus all of the other, you know, stuff that's sort of outdated. It's similar to me in the way that Amazon Books has replaced Barnes and Nobles. So Amazon started by basically taking a lot of business away from Barnes and Nobles because you could just order your books online. But guess what? Some people still like to go into a bookstore. So now, rather than Barnes and Nobles, you have these Amazon bookstores where you can go in, check it out, and those bookstores might even lose money or break even. But because their whole business is founded on the digital online marketplace, they can afford to have that. So I think it's going to be a similar thing in the media landscape where because Netflix started as an online business, it's going to be so much better positioned than something like, you know, CBS or ESPN. Right. And then to an even larger extent, I think YouTube is the best position of all because YouTube okay. is user generated completely. So they don't even have to spend, I mean, now they have YouTube Red and I think that's a great strategy for them to actually produce high level content. But most of their content is user generated. It's about this vertical media alignment with media personalities and their followers. So I actually think YouTube is the best position of all the media companies right now. Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, too, just because it, it's a platform rather than some sort of just a website where people come to get uh, you know, content for, you know, that was generated by a Netflix. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things that really frustrates me about TV today and just a lot of uh, media consumption is the ads. Mm -hmm. So especially TV where you're interrupted every five minutes with five minutes of commercials, basically. It seems yeah. like that's the only way that they're paying for, you know, these super inefficient business processes that aren't, you know, keeping up with the times. So Yeah, and you should be able to pay a little extra to go ad free. The fact mm -hmm. that cable doesn't offer that, I mean sure you can record it, but to watch something live, you have to watch commercials. I think that's gonna bite them in the back mm -hmm. as time moves forward. And I think the freemium model is so much better where you listen to Spotify and once you get sick of ads, you just pay 10 bucks a month. Same mm -hmm. thing with, you know, many of these other platforms. So yeah, I think that's a big mistake and they're going to have to evolve, but I don't know if the economics for these traditional media companies will pan out if they, mm -hmm. you know, have the option of skipping ads. I mean, they might have to charge because uh, they're already to a large extent are more expensive. So if they charge you even more to go ad free, then no one's going to pay for that. Right. Yes, I think there's a lot of ways that advertisement or this freemium model can evolve. So if we're talking about, you know, TV, maybe maybe there's something that kind of surrounds the TV. So uh, with, I have NFL Red Zone just because I'm a big NFL fan. Um, 
and basically you can watch all of the games on Sundays. It's kind of going back and forth between all of these, but it's completely ad-free. But what they do have is every once in a while when there's sort of a down period, the main screen with all the football and stuff going on kind of minimizes a little bit. You can still see it, but then you have like an Amazon Prime ad, you know, kind of wrapping around the part where you watch the TV, which is less annoying because you're not, um, you don't hear it. It's not annoying noises and it's not extra loud like a lot of commercials are. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's maybe one, one cool way that this can be overcome. And that might be uh, something that YouTube could do as well. You mm-hmm. know, instead of having to wait for an ad to play at the beginning, maybe it just kind of a little banner pops up during, you know, there's a lot of annoyances with that too. But, you know, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of, I get frustrated with ads sometimes. So I would be one of those people that pay to get ads removed. Um, I was just curious what, what your thoughts were on all of this. Yeah, I think that the less annoying ads will both stand out and they'll be they'll have higher conversion rates. So I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but my favorite ad on TV is the Corona ad because basically everyone's shuffling around. Maybe you're watching football or whatever. There's these noisy commercials hurling information at you about different statistics and you just can't really absorb it. And then all of a sudden this Corona commercial comes on and it's just video footage, single pan of this beautiful beach. And there's someone just laying there in a hammock drinking a Corona and there's no words at all. And it just has the nice sound of chirping and of waves and everyone in the room turns their heads and looks towards it because the silence is what's different about the room. And then you just see the Corona logo come up and there's no text, there's no audio audio other than the very subtle creating that environment and that experience. So I think ads that do not annoy, but put you in a mindset that's favorable, those are Mm going to be the best ads. And and, uh, yeah, so that's what I would say there. So the, the final space that we should talk about is social media. So we talked about it a little bit about how I believe that with the primary social media networks, like the big guys, like the ones where your employers ask to check out your Facebook profile before you can, you know, I mean, not that everyone does this, but I do know Mm -hmm. many people who have been asked of that with those networks. I do think there's going to be more syncing up your social profile with your real world profile so that you're creating a very real digital identity that sort of goes on all of these platforms. Um, But, you know, there's always going to be those weird outlier social media networks where you can just troll people and say things anonymously and whatever. I, you know, social media is the fastest growing of all of the media platforms that we've talked about. So it's faster than gaming, faster than TV, faster than, than even digital Uh, OTT consumption like Netflix and some other some other interesting developments are that social stories are growing really rapidly so the idea of your Instagram story or your snapchat story this is a seriously growing space because Mm -hmm. as people record what's going on in their daily life and sharing it in more of an 
intimate spur of the moment way rather than like crafting this ideal idyllic image that might not be real that is growing uh, very rapidly yeah i mean i'm i'm not really sure what i think entirely on the subject just because i personally don't use that much social media myself um but i do see uh, a world where basically all of the social media channels are intertwined. I think eventually it's just going to be a, a way of life that everybody knows everything about you. You know, this is sort of the the collective social network that everybody has access to all the time that probably won't happen for a while. But if, if there's going to ever be some sort of AI that's governing people you know your social your data is going to be out there for basically everybody to see and mm-hmm. i think there's just going to be some awkward period where people realize that everybody has like some really embarrassing parts of their life but they're going to have yeah. to get over that and from a business and advertising perspective Imagine if rather than just putting ads out on Facebook or just putting ads out on Twitter or, or on Google or whatever, you could instead just put an email list of all of your previous customers and then target them wherever they go. Any time they log on, I mean, you already can do this with retargeting to a large extent, but it hasn't bridged the gap between some of the big giants like you know, Twitter and Facebook. You have to do separately. Facebook is the biggest one of all because with Facebook you also get you also get uh, Instagram. You can also do WhatsApp. You can also do FaceApp, Facebook Messenger. You can also do their entire audience network, which includes. You'd be surprised how many major other media platforms like Daily Beast and whatever else. Mm-hmm. So, and I think from a business perspective, it is more advantageous to just have a couple big players that you work with rather than like shotgunning it and trying to manage all of these different campaigns among all of them. And the same thing for the user perspective. I don't want to create a million different social media profiles. You know, I'm fine doing like three, like, you know, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, like even that already is a lot to keep up and some of them don't get Mm -hmm. kept up with. So I do think we're going to see these platforms becoming more consolidated, our data becoming more consolidated and being more inter- interwoven with our real, in real life world. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with all of that. Um, given given all of this, is there any other uh, media channel that you want to discuss before moving on to the worst case, best case? No, let's, do, let's do the worst case, best case. Okay. So I had I had something written down, but basically I this is probably in the the further future, maybe in the next fifty years rather than the next decade or two. Mm-hmm. But I I wrote something along the lines of media is so immersive that it hits us on basically it, it hits us at the very basic neurological level so the the lizard brain basically and it it appeals to the most fundamental portions of you know biological creatures but when this is the case any sort of manipulation is possible so so with the news we were talking about at the beginning if if media is so immersive 
that, you know, basically you can see anything, but they can also, so the news can present anything they want. So it's almost like a personalized newsletter or something along those lines. It can plant little seeds along the way that can manipulate your behavior. And we kind of talked about this a little bit in, in the privacy episode, but I think the the media is going to be the channel in which this sort of manipulation takes place. Yeah, I mean, we already saw that with some of the Russia hacking stuff where basically, you know, the Cambridge Analytica, they were psychographically profiling people based mm-hmm. on what their background was, what sort of opinions they probably hold, and then what sorts of manipulation would be most effective on that And a lot of times it was just getting them not to vote. So it was more convincing them of inaction or convincing them that there was no usefulness in them doing anything to try to better the world or or take a stance. So I actually had a really similar worst case scenario where imagine that media becomes so immersive and so good at basically pacifying people from taking action that it becomes mm-hmm. more like a almost like a wally kind of world but but more almost imagine that all the people who make enough money to have like a good VR system or whatever basically just spend all their free time doing that and they just don't really give a shit about saving the the planet mm-hmm. or climate or dealing with political instability that is causing thousands of deaths and you know starving people and basically we just we we stop taking responsibility for what happens in the planet and the planet gets worse and worse it gets more and more polluted the percentage of people that die as a result of the pollution and the warfare and the neglect increases year over year and people basically just are pacified by their immersive media and they're living in a, in a fantasy land. Yeah, kind of like the Matrix or anything else, you know. Or uh, Ready Player One is another example of, you know, the, a world that kind of embodies what you're saying, where everybody yeah. just escapes. One of the things I wonder is if that will only happen after the world kind of goes to shit. So if, if, uh, the world remains, so if we take all the action to keep people happy socially and we do everything in our power to save the environment and make sure that the environment thrives, like would people actually want to escape anymore? Well, you know, that's a really good question. And that makes me think of the show that you recommended to me, Electric Dream, which I watched mm-hmm. the pilot of. And this was a fascinating concept. So basically, in this show, I won't spoil anything, but basically, this is a world where you go into an immersive virtual reality that is generated by your subconscious. So imagine you go into this world, and whatever your subconscious desires the most in sort of a dreamlike state, that is what world you find yourself in. And because it's generated by your consciousness, it feels as real as the real world. And a lot of people who are in this, they can't tell the difference between one world and the other. 
And it's mm-hmm. like it's like almost them psychographically profiling themselves and going into this world. And I, I want to talk to you about about like what to actually take away from this episode. But what it seemed like to me is that it's not just that one world was real and one world was fake. It's that both worlds were real and that somehow mm-hmm. through this technology, they were able to tap into the quantum connectedness of all things and it was as if they were the main character was truly living in both worlds at once and that they were real and that when she decided to live in one world and not the other the other person really did die and that really was how that world existed it was sort of that like you know einstein's spooky action at a distance kind of a quantum interconnectedness uh, so yeah. i guess i guess if i were to adjust my worst case i would say that virtual reality gets so good that we start fucking up other quantum worlds, other parallel universes, <laughs> because we're we're basically like, oh yeah, let's live in this crazy avatar-like world where we're flying around and on jungle, and then it's like, oh well, we actually somehow end up in that world, and then we screw things up, and yeah. oh yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> a lot of that was a really trippy episode, but yeah. it was it was interesting too because it seemed like the characters like there were two main characters almost completely different one's like a one's like a lesbian woman who lives a very nice life and the other is like a sort of almost like an action like a tony stark type male character Uh they're very different yeah man it was it was a really cool episode but Let's not spoil it in case people. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. really interesting, but but this Electric Dreams show is basically Amazon's take on something like uh, Black Mirror that Netflix yeah. has. But so if, it's just all standalone episodes and stuff. So. Right. But if you talk about what's the furthest media can go, how immersive can it truly get? That is oh. the most immersive. So you yeah. can make something as seemingly real as possible through virtual reality. But at the end of the day, it's not actually real. But if we somehow found some way to basically go through a wormhole with our consciousness through virtual reality, so it's as if you are basically taking over the body of some other being in a parallel universe, that's as deep as it can go. I mean, that's as far Mm -hmm. as, as media can possibly take us. And I don't know if we'll ever get there. I don't know if it's even possible. But it doesn't seem impossible based on what we know now. Yeah, because I mean, if you think about dreams right now, so if you have even semi-vivid dreams, they're still extremely rudimentary in terms of how we actually perceive them. But I know, you know, people don't really truly understand where dreams come from. Uh, some, I mean, there there are a lot of good theories, I think. But if there was some sort of deep fundamental connection that you know that this is going out on a limb a little bit there a a little bit here but if dreams were some sort of aggregate of all of the different connections you've had you know that or that you that your consciousness has with other consciousness or conscious beings you know there could be some some really crazy ways to make that more vivid so if you could somehow experience your dreams in a more vivid way and remember them, I think that would be insanely yeah. immersive. I mean, it's, it's similar to what you were just saying, but, but if you can, if we can fully understand dreams 
and fully understand how these different experiences arise because so that that gets us into the question of what's actually real because we're mm -hmm. really experiencing our dreams but you know how can we make those dreams seem more real um yeah. now and you know there, there's a lot of really cool things we could do with similar concepts and maybe this is done with uh, something like Neuralink, mm -hmm. like elon musk's company um that's probably the, the well, best it way also to get seemed to like a similar to a hallucinogenic experience where right. you know by just taking some very small dose of lsd for instance you can have an entirely different conscious experience so yep. there's no reason to think that we couldn't somehow crack that code in a different way so rather than a chemical way maybe there's some way that we can modify the like let's say the amplitude of our brain waves so that we're on some mm -hmm. sort of different conscious plane or or mm -hmm. through you know immersive technology or something like that so have you heard of the show maniac on netflix you yeah, Maria it. and I started watching it. It was a little dark for us. We like to watch nice, happy things <laughs> when we're watching I, TV together. <laughs> yeah, so I was I was about to say that I found that to be a very, very good show. I was I binge watched it a couple weeks okay. ago, but yeah, it, I wasn't sold on the first episode, but it seemed like it could go somewhere very interesting. It was yeah. I mean, it's very similar to the Electric Dreams pilot, where there's you're experiencing other worlds, um, wow. but it's it's a drug-based thing, like you were just saying. Right, chemical. Uh, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, as we get further along with understanding chemistry and understanding neuroscience, I mean, our our understanding in these spaces is so rudimentary compared to where we'll be in twenty years or fifty years or a hundred years that. I don't think you can say that any of this stuff is impossible that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. But let, let's go on to the best case scenario. So what's your best case scenario for the future of media? So I had one written before the show, but I just thought of a new one. So I'll go with my okay. first one first. So basically the first one that I thought of is we are we own all of our own data and we basically create our own worlds at will so this is again a far future thing but we can we can create our own experiences again it's it's an immersive sort of technology like we were talking about in the worst case but we own our data we can actually protect ourselves against manipulation um, and you could do this in any way you want so maybe this is active like a video game completely like you're making all the decisions of whatever world this is or it's more passive kind of like you're the third person in your dream a lot of times, but sometimes you make decisions. It's mm -hmm. like some weird combination between third person and first person. Um, and my guess is, you know, we're going to have a whole spectrum of how people want to create their own worlds, whether it's completely active or completely passive, whether they're just observing stuff going on um, in whatever world they create. Now, in the case that I was just thinking about, given our previous um, conversation is imagine being able to manipulate your brain basically like we were talking about but 
so there have been very uh, we've we both know people that have experienced basically um, other lifetimes in a short period of time. Now, what if we could take advantage of this sort of neurological process where we are literally living other lives or at least seemingly living other lives and learning all of the things from these other lives, but we do it in a short period of time. That would be so fascinating. Maybe, so maybe in uh, every night or something, people can go live several different lifetimes and... I mean that that could be what yeah. we're in right now. Maybe I mean that could that could really is. that could really mess up your your mind. Um, yeah. I mean, think about like it might age your mind or or change your thinking. But it is really interesting. I mean, imagine if you could just sort of immerse yourself in some sort of training ground. So let's say you're a rambunctious teenager, like I was, and mm-hmm. rather than taking risks in the real world like driving too fast and throwing eggs at houses and stuff like that, you could basically go into this playground world where you can jump from one building to the next, you can scale things, you can you can do all sorts of crazy things and maybe you feel some slight amount of pain so there is some feedback, but it's, it's like you're not in any danger. Um, so I think that sort of immersive world would be good. And yep. As far as what your your first best case scenario, so I had something similar where I agree. I think if we can move away from a clickbait ad revenue model of all media to something where you just pay for the media outlets that you trust as sort of an a la carte, and then likewise, you actually get paid for your data. So, you know, similar to what, to what you were saying, and you can opt out of that, but if you opt in, if you have a public profile, you get paid per impression, similar to YouTube, where if you get tons of YouTube views, you get paid based on those views. If, let's say, you put out a tweet that goes viral, you get some monies for that, and if you have tons of okay. followers and, and that kind of a thing. Um, but simultaneously, I think this needs to be coupled with some sort of authority on the truth. So let's say, let's say we have a totally but beneficial AI. It has no bad intentions. It's the pinnacle of all human thought and progress. And this AI basically just, you can ask it anytime to confirm or deny any sort of media. So you can just check it. Like imagine PolitiFact, but totally AI-based, totally unbiased, so that we have some grounding for saying this is true and this is not true and it's not just a matter of opinion and that you still have all the different media personalities and all the different types of content and content networks and everything else but you have some way of keeping it all in check i think that those both of those are going to be crucial if we want to see the best case scenario Mm -hmm. yeah i mean I, i agree with that having some sort of ground truth is i mean and the thing is that's not going to be tr- that's not going to be accurate all the time but having some sort of authority that you know can actually determine if these are blatant lies yeah. you know being wrong about something is way different than lying about something because yeah. we could yeah. be wrong about a lot of things let's say nutritionally that's an easy right. example well, it's like it's like stepping on someone's toe intentionally versus accidentally is mm-hmm. a world apart yeah 
Yeah. So uh, what do you think? So about maybe it'll the, be like, like per oh. percentage based. I was thinking. So maybe rather than yeah. saying true or false, it'll just say ninety-seven yeah. percent chance this yeah. is true. Yeah, and then we can. You know, maybe it could be a quantum the... computer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some sort of combination between a con quantum computer and a classical computer. Because I think that's you know, just as a side note, I think we really should do an episode on computing. But yeah, with quantum computing and classical computing they're very good complements to each other right right so so we can have like some we can take advantage of classical computers being very fast at some things like a quantum computer to do simple addition or subtraction is way way more complicated than you think it would be right whereas with with uh digital computing or with classical computing it's you know really straightforward to do these super simple operations but anyways um man i lost my train of thought let's, now, let's but... <laughs> do the most likely scenario okay so similar to a lot of my answers here is i think it'll do, it'll vary at different points in the world some of some of the countries like you know china's extra scary with the new news anchor where they can basically be told anything they want and it's you know seemingly coming from a a real ish person um that'll probably look more like our worst case scenarios where people are just being manipulated into whether it's passivity or manipulated into believing whatever it is the current regime wants them to believe now maybe in other countries let's say like canada or hopefully the u.s gets there um or like the the Norwegian countries always stick out as, you know, sort of advanced uh, socially. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe those countries all focus more on making sure that each user has agency and can be private when they want to be private, or at least owns their own data. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the EU has a lot of laws coming out about data and privacy. So my guess is they will probably be one of the early adopters of, you know, letting users own their data and being paid for their own data. Yeah. Um, I do think at some point it's almost inevitable that we will reach a point where the um, super immersive virtual reality worlds, whether it's anything like we were talking about or um, literally just putting on, VR goggles or whatever, um, I think that will happen at some point and there's no way around it because if that hits the public, people will just want to escape, you know, so there's a lot of suffering and if you can escape your suffering to go to this VR world, I think that's going to happen whether yeah. or not the world, you know, is, is actually going to shit or not, you know, and the weird thing is with so many people in VR, I think it might even be more likely that the environment starts to thrive again hmm. because so many people are not, you know, driving around or doing or, not you know, consuming, consuming. and reproducing. Yeah. yeah. So, so it might turn out if, if nature is just left alone a little bit and, you know, you're, we're not bulldozing every single forest that we come into so we can make, you know, paper or any, you know, homes or, all these goods and um, oil, you know, everything. I think if we just, if people went into their virtual reality worlds and then 
left nature to do its thing, nature will eventually sort itself out. Even if humans have some sort of nuclear war, wipe out basically every bit of humanity and life, in a couple billion years, the Earth will, I'm pretty sure Earth will still be around. Um, I think biological life will eventually rebound, you know, so... Yeah, I don't know about a billion years, but certainly (laughs) in in a you know a hundred million, a couple hundred million. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I have a similar, most likely scenario where I agree. I think it's going to depend on the country. So I think certain countries are going to be more authoritarian, worst case manipulation. People can't really speak the truth. People don't really know what the truth is. But there's going to be examples of countries that do have free press, free media. And I think as far as the VR, I think there might be some rules in place as far as what can be allowed in virtual worlds. Because mm-hmm. just like how anytime there's a mass shooting, a lot of people say, oh, he was a gamer, he liked shooting games, these games are bad, or look at all the violence on TV. I think there are going to be some real arguments for if we have these violent worlds and it bleeds into the real world, I could see there being some, some laws around that. Or maybe it's almost like how anyone gets free antenna TV, you get free VR, but it's just like frolicking in the field with elephants and giraffes. <laughs> it's, it's not like anything terrible. Um, and I think, yeah, I think our digital selves are going to become more and more important over time. So like who we are on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter... This is going to merge into one and it's going to become more and more important even than your real world self, especially when people work more remotely, they automate a lot of things, they have less in-person meetings and it's more just done through digital communication channels. Um, I think also there's going to be, you know, there's going to be 6 billion people online in the next five years. Right now, there's only something like 2 billion people online. So the entire developed world is going to come online in the next five years, pretty much. Not everyone, but almost everyone. And that's going to, I think, be potentially great for humanity because all of a sudden, we will all be pretty much more or less on the same page. And so if we have to address global challenges, I believe it will be a lot easier to get everyone to agree, okay, we got to put in some common sense climate policies and, and, uh, you know, it'll be a challenge between the way that different nations deal with things. But I, I tend to feel pretty optimistic about how the future of media and interconnectedness will play into the development of earth and humanity and life in general. And I also think that even when state-owned media tries to prevent people from learning about certain things, I always think there's going to be workarounds. There's always going to be some bootleg private internet where you can get free, unfiltered Google results and Wikipedia results. So I actually think that the more interconnected we are, the better position the truth is. But the caveat is that we need some way of verifying the truth. And I think the best way to do that is, you know, in the short term, some group of unbiased, good hearted people like PolitiFact in the long term, I think it needs to be some AI algorithm that can accurately project the percentage probability that this statement is true or false. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with basically all of that. Awesome. Well, that's a good place to end it, I, I think. We are all so, to thanks to everyone for listening. This has been the future of media. We're going to talk about what has we'll happened, see you next time. what is currently happening, and what will inevitably happen. The past, the present, and the